0: You're listening to the Talking Points Podcast. I'm James Creech. And I'm Thomas Kramer. And we are the co-founders of Paladin, the essential influencer marketing platform for YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch. Uh, Thomas and I started the business about four years ago, having both been in the influencer marketing space for a long time and experiencing a lot of these uh, challenges firsthand. We said, you know, there need to be better tools to help influencer agencies, talent management companies. And even traditional broadcasters, studios, embrace the digital media revolution, what's happening in social. And so we, we built tools to help find influencers, manage campaigns, and report on that activity back to brands. Thomas, you want to give a little bit more background on yourself?
1: I got started in digital media in the ad buying space. I was managing ad ops uh, for a lot of Fortune 500 video ad campaigns on YouTube. Um, and from there, I hopped over to Maker Studios, which was acquired by Disney, where I was focused on YouTube strategy and content monetization, first for the Maker network of influencers and then later for a number of Disney brands. Uh, and then from there, made the leap to uh, starting Paladin with James.
0: Very cool. Uh, I also come from the influencer space, having worked at an MCN back in the heyday, and prior to that, uh, hailing from the paid media side, working with a lot of media agencies to help them understand uh, online video advertising around the dawn of YouTube. And uh, in addition to my day job at Paladin, I also host a podcast called All Things Video, which chronicles essentially the evolution of the digital media space. And I get a chance to sit down and interview entrepreneurs and innovators in online video and kind of share their expertise and lessons learned along the way. So big shout out to Andrew Campy for inviting Thomas and and me to host the podcast today. And for those of you interested, uh, you know, big fans of digital media and influencer marketing, please would encourage you to check out all things video as well to see if uh, the content's interesting. We're going to cover some of the highlights from last week's Influence Weekly Newsletter. Starting off with some of the key stats, Thomas and I are both data-driven tech guys, so we thought we'd dig into some of the interesting met- metrics in a few of those articles. Thomas, what were some of the things that jumped out at you?
1: Yeah, one of the articles listed in the newsletter specified that social media is going to overtake print for the first time in global spending uh, from a forecast from publicist own media agency, Zenith. So they're estimating that spending on social media will jump 20% and hit a total of $84 billion this year, while newspaper and magazine spending will fall 6% to $69 billion. From there, they're saying that growth will expand social media's share of global media spend by 13%, making social media the third biggest channel behind television at 29% and paid search at 17% this year. They're seeing growth across Pinterest, Snap, Facebook, and Twitter ad sales with Amazon uh, as a newer entrant and growing, placing them in third place behind Google and Facebook. What do you think, James?
0: I mean, no big surprise here, given where people are spending their time and the much richer targeting available with social ads. Uh, I also found it interesting to note that given this is an influencer marketing-focused newsletter, a lot of us paying attention are primarily interested in the influencer use case. This article doesn't touch that, right? It's only focused on paid social. So, look, that's where the eyeballs are. That's where advertisers should be shifting budgets. Uh, Honestly, it feels like it should be happening faster than it is.
1: Absolutely. For me, I thought it was a little obvious. Like, yes, print is declining in the face of growth in digital, and that's been happening for many years. What I'd be interested in seeing is some data on how efficiently publishers are migrating uh, their revenue sources from print to digital instead of just bleeding off those dollars entirely and shrinking the pie on the publisher side we can get some insight on some of this stuff today for public companies that are in the publishing space like the New York Times. For example, in their last quarterly report, they said that digital ad revenue was up 13-14% and print revenue was down 8% in the last quarter. But we don't really have any insight in the industry as a whole, like are publishers capturing and growing their annual dollars in ad sales altogether or is this declining?
0: Let's uh, shift gears and talk about the next section, which is interesting people or trends. Influence Weekly newsletter always includes a great section on some of the interesting people to follow in the space, which tends to highlight a lot of up and coming influencers or uh, people who are kind of experimenting with some new approaches to influencer marketing. So definitely check that section out. I think the thing that stuck out to me really more on the trends uh, direction of the topic is hearing about Facebook gaming, right? And you think about uh, live streaming gaming in general, Twitch is obviously the 800-pound gorilla in the space. They've got over 3 million uh, monthly active streamers. Facebook, on the other hand, only has 153,000, based on the last available data, monthly streamers. But the inventory is growing, and the viewership is, is pretty compelling. And now we're seeing more influencers turning to Facebook gaming because they're discovering that it monetizes more effectively. They have a chance to grow audience pretty quickly, and they have a chance to monetize better than they could, say, on Twitch or YouTube.
1: Absolutely. And there was a great article uh, from Business Insider in the newsletter that spoke to that, specifically saying that through its level Up partnerships, Facebook is giving some of its live gamers more revenue streams. And often they're monetizing at a higher rate than they were on Twitch or YouTube or able to reach a larger audience on Facebook than they were directly through Twitch or YouTube. So yeah, James, what do you think about
0: that? Yeah, you know, I follow the gaming space uh, pretty closely, and I think Facebook, you know, is taking some pretty significant efforts to be a more significant player. You also have startups like Caffeine who are, you know, getting into the space, and then you have the Microsoft-owned Mixer platform, which are, are pretty serious contenders. Uh, you know, look, Twitch is is a great resource, uh, but it's not the only game in town anymore. And clearly, gaming content is very prolific, and uh, there's a sea of eyeballs that are looking for more types of gaming content. So it's great to see a more rich ecosystem uh, emerging and it's great to see more streamers have a chance to get discovered rather than just the you know, dominant players on Twitch dominating the conversation.
1: What do you think about the, um, the monetization arms race between these platforms?
0: You know, I think Facebook is probably best suited to win that arms race. They've got an existing scale and infrastructure. They've got a huge sales team. They have strong relationships with advertisers that know they already need to be on Facebook and thus have built-in upfront commitments or certain amounts that they want to spend to unlock you know, preferred rates. And so as a result, Facebook can leverage that muscle to more effectively compete against say, a Microsoft, which has less experience in the consumer space at this point. And, uh, you know, Twitch is starting to develop stronger advertising relationships. We saw this year for the first time in 2019, Amazon will be kind of the third leading ad giant behind Google and Facebook, but they've got a lot of ground to make up to, to really be as significant of a contender. So I don't think that's impacted the Twitch side as directly. I think, you know, Facebook is in the best position to continue to, to lead.
1: Yeah, I think Facebook's in um, a position we've seen them before, especially with new features like with a with a network the size of two billion people and or bots. Uh, they have a pretty strong ability to just pour gas on whatever feature they want to push forward, right? Whether that's stories or live streaming from a selfie camera, or now in this case, streaming video games. I think they also have a history of really overcompensating to promote new features. And, you know the list goes on beyond those things it's you know it's watch it's platform games like farmville it's it's really anything that they've done in the past and they'll push hard on it they'll promote it in the algorithm they'll get people wild exposure numbers and engagement numbers and you know excessively large upfront deals or high ad rates and then essentially abandon it if it doesn't meet whatever internal criteria that Facebook is looking for, and you know, most recently we've seen this with live streaming upfront deals with celebrities, where they're paying celebrities to go live and talk to their Facebook page audience um, a certain amount of times in a certain time frame. Um, so I'm definitely having flashbacks to that period. Yeah. If I was a gamer, I'd be a little bit skeptical of the numbers I'm seeing, even if they're huge in the way that uh, this article highlights, where you know this this guy Helms World he was able to grow 100,000 followers very quickly. But, you know, what are those followers? Are those engaged followers? Did the people Facebook push that stream out to, can they be relied on to see this frequently in the future if um, it's algorithmically driven? and Facebook deprioritizes that stuff in the future. Beyond that, you know, Facebook's history of bot engagement, whether that's, you know, through entertainment or elections, uh, is pretty well documented, as is um, their recent... Boo-boo manipulating video view counts and other video-related metrics uh, that were behind the most recent push for publishers to adopt video. So for me, it's a little bit of a wait-and-see game. I, I definitely agree, yes, Facebook has the war chest to pay for exclusivity in the way that Mixer is paid for Ninja. They could absolutely pay for esports event e- exclusivity and broadcasting that. But whether or not you see adoption by gamers who tend to be... You know, specialty platform-driven, and the you know Discord for chat, not Slack or WhatsApp or Twitch for streaming, rather than YouTube or Facebook. Um, it's it's a lot of uphill battling, in my opinion, and a lot of wait and see for the validity of these actions and these metrics.
0: Good call. I mean, obviously, Facebook has an opportunity to artificially inflate this by putting more spend or more attention and driving traffic to these, you know, newer gamers, we'll see if that proves out right. Ultimately, can these influencers support themselves organically on the platform or not will depend on the relative success of of Facebook in the gaming space. So we've covered uh, interesting people and trends. Let's look at the news. Lots of uh, interesting industry news this week. We can go through a few of the key articles. One particular article highlighted the fact that 84% of United Arab Emirates influencers do not disclose paid partnerships. You know, that's not surprising to me, given that much of this behavior is driven by whether or not regulators are stepping in and enforcing this. And certainly, that's going to be less enforced outside of the US and, and UAE particularly comes to mind as pretty laissez-faire and not, not trying to overregulate or impose additional restrictions on influencers. So if no one's telling them to do it, I don't see a reason why they're going to feel the need to. Did you have any additional thoughts on on that article?
1: I think we've seen, at least in the States, a few anecdotal cases of the government trying to enforce this at the influencer level and trying to make examples of very well-known influencers like a Kim Kardashian or whomever. And there's been a couple settlements or a couple, yes, mom, I won't do that ever again, U.S. government agreements but i don't think that's going to be effective for a few reasons like one i don't think most people are aware of it and two the risk reward is still very off balance where if you know you're a mid tier influencer you're extremely unlikely to be the target of some of those enforcement activities and and even at the mid tier you know what is mid tier mid tier could be millions of followers relative to you know a, a giant celebrity or absolutely massive superstar influencer. I guess my thought is that the government is not very well positioned to regulate this at the influencer level. I think if they actually want to get serious about enforcing it, then they need to legislate some penalties for the platforms themselves and make the platforms enforce it. And really the reason for that is just cost. Like if the government wanted to track this stuff, they'd have to implement a massive scraping operation and from every social platform and say like, okay, these are all the posts for every major influencer and then they're going to have to identify, well, this post is clearly sponsored, but it was not disclosed as such. And it, it oftentimes that could be a serious margin call. Like have training technology to make that sort of identification, I think would be very challenging and certainly extremely costly. So the platforms with billions of dollars on hand, I think are in a much better position to do that. Um, So, you know, penalize the platforms, make them pay multi-billion dollar fines if you really want to get serious about disclosure for sponsorship. But if you're not going to do that, then I think it's pretty
0: hopeless. Yeah, uh, the other industry news that stuck out there's there's quite a bit of this uh, you know industry reports that are created by various service providers. We saw a few examples. One in the celebrity and beauty influencer space that was published by Launch Metrics. There was another example here of most popular Instagram hashtags published, I believe, by Simply Measured. And you know those things just stick out to me often as bit of self-serving marketing pieces, not to call it any company specifically. I mean obviously people are trying to do useful content marketing and, and probably, you know, they're asking the right questions or this type of content is interesting to people. But I tend to view these types of publications with a very healthy degree of skepticism because oftentimes the sample methodologies are not very complete. Again, the the bias is quite self-serving when you do this type of content marketing. So I didn't necessarily take too much away from those articles. But Thomas, did anything else that stuck out to you from an industry news standpoint or looking at some of those industry publications published by those service providers?
1: Nothing tremendous. I really value content marketing, you know, regardless if it's branded or not, if it has something that's actionable. So, you know, something like a list of top hashtags used globally is trivia. It's not necessarily something that's going to help me be a better marketer or work influencer agent or influencer marketer or whatever um you are listening to this podcast i also agree with with your assertion that you have to be skeptical of the source of the data like if i wanted to track the top hashtags used on instagram that means i'm tracking every single post ever published which is probably a scraping operation that is not feasible there'd have to be some serious sampling going on and that's not to say that you can't get a good representative sample of something um, what stuck out to me on this list is every one of these hashtags is in the English language <laughs> and um, I don't think every Instagram influencer is using the English language certainly so that you know disclosures you know hey this is English language only or hey this is a sample of X influencers over a y period of time I think are definitely
0: more meaningful anything that you were following this week that wasn't included in the influence weekly newsletter
1: In particular, I was interested in the statements that Mark Zuckerberg made with relation to freedom of speech. This has been in the news a lot with relation to protests in China and Hong Kong, but he said something I thought was pretty interesting, and I'll just read the quote here. He said, People having the power to express themselves at scale is a new kind of force in the world, a fifth estate alongside other power structures of society. People no longer have to rely on traditional gatekeepers in politics or media to make their voices heard, and that has important consequences. I understand the concerns about how tech platforms have centralized power, but I actually believe the much bigger story is how much these platforms have decentralized power by putting it directly into people's hands. It's part of this amazing expansion of voice through law, culture, and technology. And I guess if, if you're unfamiliar with the fifth estate, he's basically making a play on the fourth estate, which is the press, which is you know the fourth estate of power behind the three branches of the the U.S. government or or the three branches of the the U.K. government if you go far back enough. Did you have any thoughts on it, James?
0: Yeah, you know, look, Facebook has come under a lot of fire for the position it has as a content aggregator. And their business model is predicated on the fact that people spend time on their platforms, and then they can amass a lot of eyeballs and sell that audience to advertisers. So, you know, it, it is in their best interest to play up the fact that Facebook is this great utility that's providing value to people. And, and you look, there is some truth to that. Facebook connects people, makes it easier for them to keep in touch. It certainly has helped in the organizing of social movements and allows people to express their political opinion. But the other side of that is that it can become this very dangerous tool, right? It can it can be weaponized effectively, which is what we've seen happen in recent political elections in the U.S. and abroad. And you know, technology is essentially agnostic, but it can be used by people for good or evil. And that's what, you know, people are worried about. And and Zuckerberg is now trying to make this bold claim that much like the press was heralded as this arbiter of democracy and this greater accountability mechanism against the other branches of government or, uh, you know, the, the pillars of society, so can social media do that, maybe even to an extent in an era in which you don't trust the press, right? So in kind of playing into the fears around fake news and giving people a voice, He's playing to that sentiment that you know Facebook and other social platforms uh, democratize access to information and make it easier for people to connect. But I would argue that just as easily as they can spread information, they can spread misinformation.
1: Right, and I think he, you know, he speaks that a little bit in you know saying important consequences. Although that's um, definitely a vague way to phrase uh, and summarize uh, the points that you just made. I think it's interesting. Because he's essentially saying that social media empowers anybody to have a voice who wouldn't have gotten past the gatekeepers of the fourth estate being, you know, digital media or print media or television media or whatever. And I think that's true in some cases, but largely untrue for most people. Like if you look at a user base in the case of Facebook of 2 billion people or some bots, how many of those people actually have a large voice on that platform. And there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of brands that have a large voice. There's a lot of digital publishers that have a large voice or social influencers that have a large voice. But for an everyday individual, for example, me with a few hundred Facebook friends, if I throw something out there, I have a pretty low chance of being amplified beyond my core social group or beyond my individual preference Echo chambers, the echo chambers of the people who actually follow and engage with me. Um, it's pretty rare when people have genuinely viral moments without a baked-in audience. And you know, our as influencer marketers, most of our actual lines of business are built around amplifying posts. Like people who are listening to this, know how difficult it can be to, you know, quote unquote, go viral or capture a, a moment in uh, the. Given cultural zeitgeist. So I think fundamentally what he's saying here is just largely untrue. Like Facebook is the arbiter of what people see, or rather the algorithm that they built is the arbiter of what people see. And it's not a genuine fifth estate. Like if anything, it's like an appendix to the fourth estate, just throwing in prominent individuals with a large following or influencers and media companies that have, you know, distributed digitally. And I think this is the position that they want people to be in. Because if you really want to reach a lot of people, you can buy ads on their platform. And that seems to satisfy them.
0: Yeah. I think if it were a true fifth estate, it would be decentralized, right? You would have individuals with private web pages or blogs or podcasts, right? It wouldn't be controlled by a single aggregator that, you know, makes Facebook ultimately control the fifth estate.
1: Yeah, you need to have a quality with the distribution. Like imagine a, a Slack channel with 2 billion people on it.
0: <laughs> well, uh, that kind of wraps up the core of the points that were in the Influence Weekly newsletter this past Friday. But going a bit beyond that, Thomas, what are some of the takeaways? What are some of the things that you would share with people who are new to influencer marketing or looking for additional resources to expand their knowledge?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few really important things happening in the world right now. It seems like platforms are experimenting with making engagements private, uh, whereas you could validate the popularity uh, or sentiment around something pretty easily by looking at public information. This is more and more going private and is only accessible on the influencer side or through a technology platform that's authorizing the influencer's account and pulling that data and making it available. So if you're in the influencer marketing game, I think more and more people are going to be pushed toward a tech solution. Our company, Paladin, happens to offer one, but there are several others, so I don't want to necessarily uh, be too biased there. As far as literature for learning, I think Andrew's email list, Influence Weekly, is uh, a really great source of aggregation of things that are happening in the industry um, there's some great newsletters from other digital publications as well, or blogs from the platforms as, themselves, like uh, YouTube's blog, um, YouTube's Creator Academy. There's just a number of great resources.
0: Anything come to mind for you? Yeah, much of those same things. I, you know, Tube filter tends to be great. publication about the online video space in general. It tends to cover a lot of influencer marketing related topics. There tend to be a number of terrific conferences. Uh, we just came off of VidSummit, you know, last week. We also, you know, have uh, a number of VidCons throughout the year, both here in the U.S. as well as the international programs they've started putting together. Um, there are a lot of other kind of specialty conferences, whether it's BeautyCon or some others that are focused on specific subsets of the industry that can be great ways to connect with people IRL. So, I encourage you to check some of those things out. And I'll just echo what Thomas had to say. Obviously, you know, as uh, creators of of a technology platform, we are advocates of greater transparency and accountability in influencer marketing and therefore encourage brands and agencies to you know know what they're getting into when they work with influencers and to trust in uh, that data, the best way to do that is having first-party data access through an authentication and uh, relying on a, a trusted third-party like Paladin um, or any other to to make sure that that data is provided and, and that you can run effective campaigns, report on them successfully. So, Thomas, thinking ahead to 2020, what are you most excited about for next year?
1: Well, personally, I'm most excited about the launch of a new product that I've been working on uh, with you, James, uh, for about the last year. It's called Measure Studio. And basically what it is, is a analytics platform for digital publishers who are working with social media data. So we are handling all of the social media connections across YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. We are ingesting every single post you've ever made, tracking all the data available for those posts, and then doing smart analysis to make benchmarking automated and we've been working with a lot of great beta partners Uh, they've been trying it out and getting lots of feedback and building lots of cool new features and we're getting ready to launch and so yeah that's what i'm most excited about
0: i would echo that check out measure.studio if you're interested to learn more you know we've been in the influencer marketing space for a long time and seeing additional traction on these core platforms for publishers as a way of uh, creating content and building businesses off of monetizing those audiences and there just aren't really good solutions for business intelligence today. Most people are stuck, you know, implementing a big, expensive solution like a Domo or a Tableau, or trying to cobble together manual reports, or just doing everything natively in in YouTube Analytics, Facebook Business Manager. And it gets tricky, right, at scale, or if you're trying to really get insights into what content's working, what's not really performing. So thrilled to launch that tool. Definitely encourage people to check it out at measure.studio if you're interested. And then for me, thinking ahead a little bit to 2020, I'm also really fascinated by this trend towards virtual influencers. You know, we're already seeing brands experiment with uh, creating influencers of their own or reinvigorating old IP and creating characters that, you know, new generations of fans want to, to interact with. And then also pretty excited about the growth of new platforms. I've been a bit skeptical, just kind of keeping an eye on wait and see mode on TikTok, keeping an eye on that as we head in the next 12 months. Awesome. Big year ahead. Well, thanks again to Canfi for uh, letting us guest host this uh, edition of Talking Points. Uh, encourage everyone to check out Influence Weekly and subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, if you're interested to learn more about me, feel free to to connect with me on LinkedIn. I share uh, a lot of information about what we're doing at Paladin, as well as uh, my podcast, All Things Video, on LinkedIn. Thomas, where can people find out more about you?
1: You can also find me on LinkedIn, and my MySpace page is inactive. So uh, Instagram or Twitter is fine as well.
0: There we go. And for those interested in Paladin, check us out, paladinsoftware.com. Again, we offer influencer marketing solutions for agencies and media companies all over the world. Uh, The platform for creators is localized into 11 major languages today. Uh, So we love working with people globally and want to connect with you whenever we get a chance. So if you are struggling with finding influencers, managing campaigns, reporting on any of that activity, uh, we're happy to help. And even if we're not the right solution, at least point you in the right direction. Thanks, guys. Signing off. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks, everyone. Take care.